welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Are you full of cheese still? I am still full of cheese. Uh, I I want to tell you that um, the we're recording on the day that the cheese episode came out. <laughs> and um, my husband came home and ate an entire block of Gouda because apparently he was like, that cheese episode really made me hungry for cheese. <laughs> so we ate a lot of our cheese in our fridge. So Good. you know what? It did its job. It did what it was supposed Excellent. to do. Yeah. We hope that you guys enjoyed that. I know it was something a little different than normal, but yeah. um, somebody else mentioned they're, that like they're not a big fan of cheese, but they would love to do another dash along episode with us at some point. So we'll brainstorm. We'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it won't be eating. Maybe it'll be something else. You know, like, oh, that's interesting. like bike along with Julia and we get a tandem bike. No, listen to me. We get a tandem bike <laughs> and a couple of lavaliers. Okay. Now, listen. All and right. then we bike around Rochester and <laughs> talk about the history of bicycling and also talk about um, the history of Rochester. How great would that Did be? Did you just come up with this right on I, the fly? I literally just came up with this on the fly. All right. First of all, <laughs> can you imagine what people would think if they saw... <laughs> <laughs> on a tandem bicycle with like a goi pori attached to us and yep. like mm-hmm. uh like a yeti microphone and like yep yep and josh is riding along riding alongside of us in the in car a, in a car no, in a car a yep bike. no Sorry. he can't ride a bike so i didn't mean he's, to burn him like this but no no it's fine he's gonna drive next to us very slow <laughs> with the co- with the cords running into the car <laughs> I love this so much. Okay, that's our next thing. All it's right. going to be called Ride Along with Jewel and Lauren <laughs> as they get hit by multiple cars because this is like the worst, the most ill-advised thing. But you asked for it, everybody. <laughs> so, so get ready. So it's on your hands. Mm, yeah. Our blood is on your hands, basically, is what we're saying. So get ready for that. <laughs> oh, man. Well, speaking of blood. Um, oh, man. I am very worried now. No. Um, so for this week I decided that I was going to cover an author that I'm not super familiar with in a genre of literature that I'm also not super familiar with so I feel like I've really learned a lot and I hope that you all will too I hope I will are you ready Lauren I'm yeah as ever as I'll ever be this week we're entering the brave new worlds of Octavia Butler Oh, you know what? And I have been meaning to read some Octavia Butler, but I have not list. I have not read sci-fi in a very long time, mm-hmm. and I feel like I don't know if I'm ready. You know, I do bet that you would like it. Okay, probably a little more so than I would. But <laughs> I, hey, okay. I'm willing to give it all a try. So, okay, great. Love it. I think maybe a lot of people have heard her name, but they're not totally familiar with her works or unless you are like a sci-fi reader, maybe maybe her name is like completely foreign to you. So yeah. here's what you should know. So Octavia Butler was a groundbreaking American writer. She was one of the few women of color publishing in a genre dominated by white men. Uh, Butler won the coveted Hugo Award, which is considered the premier award in science fiction, as well as the Nebula Prize, which are which is given to the best works of science fiction or fantasy in the U.S. Um, she won those twice each, and that was wow. a huge deal at the time. She was also the first science fiction writer ever to receive the MacArthur Fellowship. Wow. Oh, so, wow. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
Octavia Estelle Butler was born in Pasadena, California in June 1947. The only child of um, her mother's name was also Octavia. Octavia Margaret Mm. Guy, who was a housemaid, and Larice James Butler, who was a shoeshine man. Um, So Octavia's father died when she was seven. And to support the family, her mother worked as a maid. Um, She was extremely shy as a child. And Octavia found an outlet at the library, reading fantasy Mm. books and also in writing. Um, She did have a mild form of dyslexia, but she didn't Mm. let this challenge deter her from developing a love of books. Um, She started creating her own stories early on and she decided to make writing her life's work around the age of 10. Octavia wrote reams of pages in her big pink notebook. And at first she was enamored with fairy tales and also horse stories, but she quickly became interested in science fiction magazines such as Amazing Stories and Galaxy Science Fiction. So Octavia did do a lot of interviews later in life. And so I've gotten some really great um, information like right from her own words that I'm going to intersperse throughout this. So Mm -hmm. to an MIT class on the media in transition in 1998, Butler told this anecdote. It's impossible to begin to talk about myself in the media without going back to how I wound up writing science fiction, and that is by watching a terrible movie. The movie was called Devil Girl from Mars, and I saw it when I was about 12 years old, and it changed my life. It was one of those old 1950s movies in which the beautiful Martian woman arrives on Earth to announce that all the Martian men have died off and there are a bunch of man-hungry women up there, and the Earth men don't want to go. As I was watching this film, I had a series of revelations. The first was, geez, I can write a better story than that. And then I thought, gee, anybody can write a better story than that. And my third thought was the clincher. Somebody got paid for writing that awful story. Oh, yeah. So Mm -hmm. I was off and writing. And a year later, I was busy submitting terrible pieces of fiction to innocent magazines. It's I love just that. Like, it's just so, <laughs> yeah, it's just like a really funny story that like, you know, we all have kind of had that like, wait oh, a yeah. second moment. I can do I this. I can do this. <laughs> so Octavia begged her mother to buy a typewriter so she could type up her stories. Um, she didn't necessarily know how to type at that point in life. So she was oh. kind of like chicken pecking the, the mm-hmm. keys. And she was as she admitted, happily ignorant of the obstacles that a black female writer might encounter. She mm-hmm. became a little unsure of herself for the first time around age 13 when when a well-intentioned aunt said to her, quote, honey, Negroes can't be writers. Mm. But Butler kept at her desire to publish a story and even asked her junior high school science teacher to formally type the first manuscript that she submitted to a science fiction magazine. Oh, that's sweet. After graduating from John Muir High School in 1965, Butler worked during the day and attended Pasadena City College at night. And as a freshman there, she won a college-wide short story contest, earning her first income as a writer, a cool $15. Hey, you know what? That's not nothing. That's lunch, you know? Yeah, easily. Oh, and in, in 1960s, that's lunch oh, yeah. and dinner. Yeah, the $15 is like a nice dinner, for yeah. sure, because of inflation <laughs> and all that. Yes. Absolutely. Um, in 1968, Butler graduated from uh, Pasadena City College with an Associates of Arts degree with a focus in history. And um, again, her words from the speech to that MIT class in 1998, she said, I was very lucky to be born just in time for the space race to build public support for education. All of a sudden, there was plenty of money for supplies, for instance, for science education. I can remember being in a science class where everybody had a microscope, and it was because the Russians were coming, and we had to do something about it. We had to prepare this generation coming up to do something about those evil Russians. Sometimes, I guess, good things happen for bad reasons, but the good thing really was that I found out a lot about science that I might not otherwise have found out about. There were plenty of films 
films. I don't mean science fiction, but the kind of films they used to show in school. And they were available all of a sudden to make me aware of worlds that I might not otherwise have been aware of. And we had heroes who were astronauts. You know, all these guys were flying through space and it was okay. It wasn't stupid or crazy or that science fiction garbage because prior to this, there had been the idea that comic books and science fiction would rot your brains. Anyway, all of a sudden, science fiction was okay. Yeah, you know what? We talked about this a little bit uh, in a couple of the NASA episodes, Mm -hmm. but like this idea that science fiction before the 60s or even in the early 60s before the space race really like got like got going, that it was just kind of kind of silly, like it was a little futuristic. And then after the space race started, it started to become like serious literature in that you could do speculative fiction without it being like, like nerdy. Like it's not like. At the time, it was like kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, where it's like a fantasy. It's silly. Like if mm-hmm. you're into it, then you don't have any like thoughts in reality. But after that, when it became more of like, okay, this is something that's happening in real life, then the literature of science fiction really like took off and became more exactly. Uh, oh my gosh! Yeah, mm-hmm. you could not have made this point any better. Oh, this was not. You. This was not scripted. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Actually, before. She said, I completely forgot who Julie was doing the topic about today. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you had Jules Verne. Yeah. Uh, you had H.G. Wells. Mm-hmm. And then anything that was like science, science fantasy fiction after that was very like, you know, either it was kind of sexy or it was a comic mm-hmm. thing. And again, yeah, it would rot your brain or it was, you know, scandalous or that kind of thing. And you got those B movies in the in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And then like, like Octavia said, like all of a sudden it was okay. And it's really interesting that like she got to learn these things because of Mm -hmm. what was happening in the world that she, you know, 10 years before that she wouldn't have had the chance to. And that's, that's very fascinating to me. Yeah. That's a big deal. So even though Octavia's mother wanted her to become a secretary in order to have Mm -hmm. a steady income, Butler continued to work at a series of temporary jobs. She preferred less demanding work that would allow her to get up at two or three in the morning to write, Um, but she still hadn't yet had her big break. Butler realized she was styling her stories after the white and male dominated science fiction that she had grown Mm. up reading. So Mm -hmm. she enrolled at California State University in Los Angeles, but switched to taking writing courses through the UCLA extension. And during the open door workshop of the Writers Guild of America West, a program designed to mentor minority writers, her writing impressed one of the teachers, noted science fiction writer Harlan Ellison. Oh, Um, yeah. You might have heard his name before. He's known for his prolific and influential work in new wave speculative fiction. He Mm -hmm. wrote the short stories I have no mouth and I must scream and also yeah. repent Harlequin said the TikTokman. I really like that title <laughs> that's a great <laughs> title Um, And Ellison encouraged her to attend the six-week Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop in Clarion, Pennsylvania. And there, Butler met the award-winning sci-fi writer Samuel R. Delaney, who became a longtime friend and also a mentor. Mm. So it's 1976. Butler manages to publish her first novel. It's called Pattern Master. Mm. One word, Pattern Master. This book would ultimately become part of an ongoing storyline about a group of people with telepathic powers. So this story depicts a distant future where the human race has been sharply divided into the dominant patternists and their enemies who are the diseased and animalistic clayarchs. 
and the enslaved human mutes. So the patternists who are bred for intelligence and psychic abilities are networked telepaths. They are ruled by the most powerful telepath known as the Pattern Master. So the Pattern Master novel tells the coming of age story of Tere, who's a young patternist who learns he is actually the son of the Pattern Master. <gasps> so Tere fights for position within the Patternist Society and eventually for the role of Pattern Master. Mm. There are other related titles. Um, they're Mind of My Mind from 1977, which recounts the story of how the Patternist Society originated. Wild Seed from 1980, the story of two immortal Africans named Doro and Anya Wu. And Clay's Ark from 1984, which is a story that accounts for the arrival of the disease that leads to the evolution of the mutants who threaten human survival in the other books in the series. And Butler's Publishing House would later group the works together as the Patternist series, presenting them in a different reading order from when they were chronologically published. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, Butler's third book was actually a novel called Survivor that was published in 1978 and also set in the universe of the Patternists, but it was largely separated from the events of the other books in the series. It's the only one of her early novels that hasn't been reprinted. Um, oh. And she also expressed dislike for the work, stating in an interview with Therese Littleton of Amazon.com, quote, when I was young, a lot of people wrote about going to another world and finding either little green men or little brown men, and they were always less in some way. They were a little sly or a little like natives in a very bad old movie. And I thought, no way. Apart from these human beings being populated the galaxy, this is really offensive garbage. People ask me why I don't like Survivor, my third novel, and it's because it feels a little bit like that. Some humans mm. go up to another world and immediately begin mating with the aliens and having children with them. And I think of it as my Star Trek novel. Uh, oh okay all right (laughs) i don't know if that was necessarily like shade at star trek necessarily Mm -hmm. but like she kind of it is kind of like an episodic thing like yeah of how it's portrayed so Mm -hmm. she didn't really like that one but 1979 butler had a career breakthrough with kindred which is perhaps Mm -hmm. her best known work so the novel which reimagines the typical time travel narrative tells the story of a 20th century african-american woman named dana who travels back in time to the antebellum south to save an enslaver who was her own ancestor in part butler drew some inspiration from her mother's work she said I didn't like seeing her go through back doors. If my mother hadn't put up with all those humiliations, I wouldn't have eaten very well or lived very comfortably. So I wanted to write a novel that would make others feel the history, the pain and fear that black people have had to live through in order to endure. Mm. So Kindred explores the dynamics and dilemmas of antebellum slavery from the sensibility of a late 20th century black woman who is aware of its legacy in contemporary American society. And through the two interracial couples that form the emotional core of the story, the novel also explores the intersection of power, gender, and race issues. She wrote Kindred to address the difficulties and horrors faced by enslaved persons and to help modern blacks deeply feel the historical context of challenge and sacrifice that was part of their heritage. In her own words, Quote, I wanted to reach people emotionally in a way that history tends not to. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, Kindred was actually adapted as a graphic novel by the author Damian Duffy and the artist John Jennings in 2017. Uh, so to visually differentiate the time periods in which Butler set the story, Jennings used muted colors for the present and vibrant ones for the past to demonstrate mm-hmm. how the remnants and relevance of slavery are still with us. So it debuted as number one on the New York Times hardcover graphic books bestseller list in January 2017. So it was kind of a big deal. That's awesome. Oh, I didn't realize that there was a graphic novel adaptation of it. That's really, really cool. Right. 
So Octavia told the New York Times in an interview in 2000, quote, when I began writing science fiction, when I began reading, heck, I wasn't in any of the stuff I read. The only black people you found were occasional characters or characters who were so feeble-witted that they couldn't manage anything anyway. Mm. I wrote myself in since I'm me and I'm here and I'm writing. So she researched the science in her fiction meticulously from things like how viruses behave to hospital procedures to specific geography of a setting. And she gathered information from books, articles, interviews, traveling, and her own personal experience to ground her narratives in reality. For Butler, science fiction served as a vehicle to address issues facing humanity, and it was this passionate interest in the human experience that imbued her work with a certain depth and complexity. In the mid-1980s, Butler began to receive critical recognition for her work. She won the 1984 Best Short Story Hugo Award for Speech Sounds. Uh, So Mm. this was first published in Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine in 1983. The premise is that a mysterious pandemic leaves civilization (gasps) in ruins and severely limits humankind's ability to communicate. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, Some are deprived of their ability to read or write while others lose the ability to speak. And they identify themselves by carrying items or symbols that function as names. People communicate among themselves through universally understood sign language and gestures. That's, I love that. Mm -hmm. Because it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like saints where they carry the, their um, symbols with them kind of thing. Yeah. To indicate like which saint they are. Ooh, I didn't think about that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I'm into it. And that same year, her novelette Blood Child won a Nebula Award and later a Hugo Award as well. So this is where she loses me a little. Blood Child was a breakout work. And the story describes the unusual bond between a race of insect-like life forms called the Tlick, T-L-I-C, and mm-hmm. a colony of humans who have escaped Earth and settled on the Tlick planet. Uh, when the Tlick realize that humans make excellent hosts for Tlick eggs, they establish the preserve to protect the humans and in return require that every family choose a child for implantation. And a uh. human implanted by a Tlick is called an Ntlick. Got this, everybody? Uh, So the story is narrated by Gan, a young boy chosen before birth to carry the eggs of a female Tlick named Tukatoy. She wanted to write out her fear of her body being invaded by a parasitic insect. And Butler Mm. also wanted to write about a human male becoming pregnant, about the risks to his body, as well as what it would take for him to have maternal feelings toward an alien brood. And so she ended up crafting this story about a symbiotic loving relationship between two very different species. I'm yeah. I'm sorry. I'm into this. Yeah, I yeah. knew you would be. I yeah, knew yeah. I'm be. into it. <laughs> You're gonna have like a whole reading list when this is over. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. In the late 1980s, Butler published her Xenogenesis trilogy, which has mm. been collectively also called Lilith's Brood. Um, so Dawn, 1987, Adulthood Rights, 1988, and Imago from 1989. So this series of books explores issues of genetics and race. Following a nuclear war that has made Earth uninhabitable, the human Lilith finds herself on a ship with an alien group called the Onkali, O-A-N-K-L-I. So the possibilities of interbreeding and genetic manipulation drive the plot forward and make commentary about miscegenation. That's the Mm. interbreeding of people considered to be of different racial types. Uh, Butler traveled to the Amazon to do research for these books. 
And I thought this was interesting. Dawn is currently being adapted for television by Ava DuVernay and Charles D. King's Macro Ventures, along with writer Victoria Mahoney, marking the first time that Octavia's Butler's work has been adapted for television. But no release date has been announced yet. Yeah, I remember when Ava DuVernay um, announced that and people absolutely lost Lost their their minds minds. because it's... It's astounding that any of her books have not been like made into a right. mini series yet, or like a TV movie, or even like a like a major feature film. Mm-hmm. Like it's astounding because her books are so seminal and influential that I'm really surprised that it just hasn't been done yet. Right. So, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about um, Afrofuturism in a minute, oh, which yeah. I think mm-hmm. there might be a reason why people are getting into Afrofuturism all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, a couple more notable books. So Octavia went on to write the two installment Parable series, which is also sometimes called the Earth Seed series. It's Parable of the Sower from 1993 and Parable of the Talents from 1998. So set in a future society that's been ravaged by climate change and economic stratification, its heroine is a young woman named Lauren Oya Olamina who <gasps> suffers from hyper empathy, which makes her feel the pain of anyone around her. When her home is destroyed, she leads a group to find a new community called Earthseed. And it's realistic more than utopian in the parable mm. books cast an unflinching eye in humanity at its best and its worst. Hmm. Publishers and critics have labeled Butler's work as science fiction. And while Butler enjoyed the genre deeply, calling it potentially the freest genre in existence, she Mm -hmm. didn't actually want to be pigeonholed as a genre writer. Uh, She claimed to have three loyal audiences, black readers, science fiction fans, and feminists. Mm. I mean, that's a great Venn diagram. Yeah, right? In 1995, Butler became the first science fiction writer to receive a genius grant from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Mm. So the MacArthur Fellows Program doesn't accept applications. Um, People send in nominations anonymously and confidentially. Um, They're sent to the foundation and reviewed by an anonymous and confidential selection committee of about a dozen people. So it was a very big deal when, when she was selected. I had no idea that that was an anonymous like system i, th- I yeah. thought like it was like everything else you'd be where, like you know, can i apply for can i get some money yeah <laughs> <laughs> if Maybe anybody wants to nominate lauren and me for MacArthur oh Fellows, yeah please we are happy to take that <laughs> we will we will do some great work we promise incredible work we'll ride a bicycle around rochester and- <laughs> yeah that's it that's what our macarthur genius grant is going to be spent on <laughs> well the best tandem bicycle you've ever seen Oh, beautiful. Lights up. (laughs) So there's a few ongoing themes uh, that are notable in Octavia Butler's writing. Mm -hmm. There's a critique of present day hierarchies. So in multiple interviews and essays, she explained that her view of humanity as inherently flawed by an innate tendency toward hierarchical thinking, which leads to intolerance, violence, and if not checked, the ultimate destruction of our species. Mm -hmm. Just some real lightheartedness. Yeah, Um, She likes to talk about the remaking of the human. So her stories often feature gene manipulation, interbreeding, symbiosis, mutation, alien contact, and other forms of hybridity as the means to correct the sociobiological causes of violence. Mm, Um, You often see the survivor as hero. Her protagonists are often disenfranchised individuals who endure, compromise, and embrace radical change in order to survive. Mm. 
There's also often the creation of alternative communities. So her stories feature mixed communities founded by African protagonists and populated by diverse individuals. Octavia Butler creates bonds between groups that are generally considered to be separate and unrelated and suggests hybridity as the potential root of good family and blessed community life. Mm. And then you often see a relationship to Afrofuturism. So Afrofuturism is a term coined by Mark Derry to describe speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture, or Mm -hmm. basically a way of imagining possible futures through a black cultural lens. A really great popular example is the Black Panther movies and the Black Panther comic series and how finally, and I'm not a comic book person, you know this, but I really enjoyed Black Panther. I'm glad that finally we had a black superhero with a all black cast everybody was so badass it was it was so great to you know the scenery was great the storyline was great i mean it was it was honestly like a perfect superhero movie i mean i remember we went to go see it and mm-hmm. we were just like completely blown away by how incredible it was and it was also not for nothing incredibly popular like it literally yes. made billions of dollars oh, exactly. and broke a ton of records and exactly and so it you know you were dealing with the society that you know was kind of hidden away from you know our current modern day white <sighs> Western led by culture. white man culture, Western mm-hmm. culture society, and they were thriving. They had their own technology. They had all of these great cultural um, things happening with them. And so that is probably, you know, the most popular form that you would see of Afrofuturism right now. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that that probably has something to do with with Octavia Butler's kind of stories coming back around to coming back to be popular Uh for people to start readapting them for modern day audiences. You know, not to sound like a cynic here because I'm not a cynic, but I feel like what the, the popularity of it, because it's not like people weren't asking for these stories to be told, Mm -hmm. right? Like there has always been a, a dearth of representing stories that aren't just, white male or white female you know middle class and up stories so there's always been a demand for it but until they took you know rolled the dice on black panther and it made a ton of money i think that's when the powers that be really realized like oh there's a market for this (laughs) and it's really only been in the the last 10 years that anybody's been like oh women are funny (laughs) <laughs> yeah i know women, that women. Too. you should like, write a comedy for women or yeah. like oh like this like this very like you know black centric you know thing is actually very popular and people like it yeah i'll watch a movie where there aren't any white people in them you know like it's it was like this weird thought That's process of like if there's no white people on screen then white people won't go and see it or whatever this kind of like reductive yeah, thing insane. is yeah it's ridiculous hollywood if you're listening <laughs> yeah hollywood if you're listening to us two white girls <laughs> in a podcast where tens of people listen <laughs> you, should, you should start to take us seriously so yeah, you I'm saying. should we might win a MacArthur Genius Grant and then look You never know. We might get nominated after this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, my God. Anyway, not to take this away from our subject at hand. Absolutely um, not. So in 1999, Octavia left her native California for Seattle, Washington. She spent several years grappling with writer's block. And mm. her, her efforts to write were actually hampered by some health issues and their accompanying mm. medications. 
After starting and discarding numerous projects, Butler wrote her last novel, Fledgling, which was published in 2005. It was her reinvention of the typical vampire narrative. So her blood drinkers, called the Ina, develop a symbiotic relationship with humans. They're not frightening monstrosities. Like much of Butler's work, the novel takes up biological hybridity as a way to explore phenotypical or racial constructions. Mm. So she continued writing and taught at Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop regularly. In 2005, she was inducted into the Chicago State University's International Black Writers Hall of Fame. Mm. Butler died outside her home in Lake Forest Park, <gasps> Washington on February 24th, 2006 at age 58. Oh, that's awful. So accounts were inconsistent as to the exact cause of her death. Some There were some reports that she suffered a fatal stroke. Others indicated mm. that she died of head injuries after falling and hitting her head on her oh, walkway. Geez. Like, yeah, just just like a really sad, like early, early death for mm-hmm. such, you know, for this person that we're that some of us are just learning about you know yeah yeah exactly so butler had actually maintained a long-standing relationship with the huntington library in california and she bequeathed her papers including manuscripts Mm. correspondence school papers notebooks and photographs to the library in her will Uh, the collection has more than 386 boxes and it was made available to scholars and researchers in 2010 um so there's a post on the huntington library website about her collection and they did have a big exhibit on her work in 2017 and they shared some of the images from that and as well as the gallery guide and it's really really interesting so it's not just like you know up oh, here's my manuscript i'm sketching out notes whatever there are um there are drawings there are inspirational messages there are you know she would write over and over i'm gonna be a successful writer or like you can do oh, wow. this like you know all kinds of stuff to kind of like pump herself up it, mm-hmm. it's really 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 cool to to take a look at that so we'll share we'll share a link to the finding aid to that collection as well as the huntington library um yeah, sure. guide to that collection but yeah just really interesting stuff and I mean, I'm not, again, like I said, I'm not really a sci-fi person, but I'm, I'm willing to give this a go. I think I'll start with Kindred. That feels like the least, like, the, the, the least alien, alien for me. you. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could deal with the time travel narrative for sure. But yeah, yeah. yeah I'm sure that Lauren will, will hop on to some of these. Yeah, for sure. They sound amazing. How sad, though, that, I mean, she clearly had so many more stories inside yes, of her that she just exactly. wanted to get out. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. So that was my tale of Octavia Butler. How cool. All right. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to like check out my local library or buy some buy some books from a local bookstore. Yes. Used bookstore and see if I can scrounge some up because, uh, yeah, those sound awesome. Exactly. I'm because like once Dawn hits our television screens, forget yes. it. Yes. Yeah. There's everybody's going to be wanting to read Dawn. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, get on it now, everybody. <laughs> You heard it here. Yeah, you heard it here. You can be like, oh, I already read Dawn. You can have my copy because it's going to be it's going to be hard to come by. The library is going to have like four copies and they're all going to be out all the time. You know how it is. <laughs> so now it's time for my quiz. Mm. The quiz is called The Butler Did It. Oh, yes. I'm going to give you a fictional butler's name with a brief description about them. And you tell me what popular work or series to which they belong. Question one. Joffrey Butler, the cynical, sardonic English butler of the Banks family on the west side of Los Angeles, about 2,700 miles from Philadelphia. Question two. Alfred Pennyworth, 
A classically trained British actor and ex-special operative who becomes a loyal and tireless butler following the murders of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Question three. Mr. Charlie Carson, a classically trained British butler, head of the pantry, wine cellar, dining room, and male staff, has a soft spot for Lady Mary. Question four. Wadsworth, merely a humble butler who buttles, sir. Or is he secretly an undercover FBI agent? Question five. Cogsworth, a pendulum clock and the major domo to Lumiere's Mater D. Question six. Mr. Giles French, an English gentleman's gentleman who becomes saddled with the responsibility of caring for Sissy, Jody, and Buffy after they're orphaned and sent to live with their Uncle Bill in New York City. Question seven. Lurch, a six foot, nine inch tall, gloomy butler. You rang? Question eight. Benson Dubois, the wisecracking butler on a nighttime parody of sudsy serial daytime shows. He later got his own spinoff series. Question nine. Mr. Butlertron, the loyal robot servant to Principal Scudworth. He calls everyone Wesley, even if their names are Abe, Cleo, or Joan. And finally, question 10. Duckworth. Life is like a hurricane for this no-nonsense butler and chauffeur who, despite his name, is an anthropomorphic dog. I'll give you about a minute to think, and we'll be back with your answers. Okay, I, mm, okay, all right, <laughs> okay, okay, all right. all right, hit me, hit me with it. All right, number <clears throat> one, Joffrey Butler, the cynical, sardonic English butler of the Banks family on the west side of Los Angeles, about 2,700 miles from Philadelphia. What popular work or series does he belong to? I mean... This was the one that I was like, I don't, th- I don't know this. Jo- His name is Joffrey Butler. Mm-hmm. Is it television? It's a television. Yeah. Oh shoot. Is it Jeffrey or Joffrey? <laughs> oh, oh, oh! This is, um, this is Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Woo! Woo! 
Yes. Yeah. Um, so Joffrey was played by Joseph Marcel, who is an English actor who's a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company in real life. Oh, oh. hey, you know what? A job's a job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was like it was ran for six years. He made some money off that. Yeah, he's fine. All right. Number two, Alfred Pennyworth, a classically trained British actor and ex-special operative who becomes a loyal and tireless butler following the murders of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Oh, that's Batman. It is from Batman. I didn't um, know Alfred was a classically trained actor. Yes. Yes, he was. Wow. He has like a really rich backstory. Um, in films, he's been portrayed by um, Michael Goff, Michael Caine, Jeremy Irons, and coming up in 2022, Andy Serkis in yeah. The Batman. <laughs> you know what? I'm very curious to see that one because it looks like it's going to be deeply weird oh yeah and you're like in a (laughs) like but not like in the like 80s you know tim burton batman kind of way i i feel like it's just going to be like unsettling and not on purpose yeah you know i'm curious i'm just curious (laughs) all right number three Mr. Charlie Carson, a classically trained British butler, head of the pantry, wine cellar, dining room, and male staff, and he has a soft spot for Ladyberry. Um, this is Downton Abbey. It is, of course, Downton Abbey, and he's played by Jim Carter, and he just- I love him. He, I love him, too. He just really, really makes it. He's so good. I watched, I, I only watched like the first couple of seasons and then it got like too soapy. Like it was just too like, <laughs> oh, his twin arrived, but then she died and like the baby died. But is there a second baby? Like it was just like, it was like, okay, everybody. I was like, chill the, out. Um, there was around like season four, somebody put together all these like cut scenes of every time somebody got bad news in a letter from Down Abbey. <laughs> Really I mean, great. that's that was the only way to get bad news besides yeah. in person. That was it. Yes. That's yes. all you got. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Number four. Wadsworth. Merely a humble butler who buttles, sir. Or is he secretly an undercover FBI agent? I mean, is this is this Kingsman? <laughs> no, no, it's not Kingsman. Do I... Uh, I know what this is and you're mad at me. <laughs> is that <what's> happening? <laughs> I don't remember. Secretly an FBI agent. That's the way it could have happened. But could it have happened like this? Oh, no, I'm so sorry. This is Clue. This yes. is Clue. Yep. I'm so sorry. Yep. I've only seen the movie once. You got to give You, you should watch it more. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> you should just watch it more. I like to watch it on my birthday. I like to watch mm-hmm. it when I'm homesick. I like yeah. to watch it. I have watched it like the week before Ellie was born. Yeah. See, for me, that's that's Ghostbusters. Like Ghostbusters, okay. I'll watch. They're from the know. same time period. Yeah, yes. basically. So Clue like from anymore. 1985. If you haven't okay. seen it, you should watch it immediately. Yeah, or Julie will send podcast. you a DVD in yeah, the mail. Yeah, if you don't have it, I will send it to you. Okay, everybody? Yeah. Um, and Wadsworth is played, of course, by Tim Curry in yes. the best Tim Curry, clearly. Best version of Tim Curry besides Rocky Horror Picture Show. Okay, you're right. They're very diametrically opposed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number five. Cogsworth, a pendulum clock and the major domo to Lumiere's Mater D. 
Um, I wrote B and the B here, but it's Beauty and the Beast. It is B and the B. Hey. Um, <laughs> yes, Beauty and the Beast. Um, so I just I just like this term. A major domo is a person who speaks, makes arrangements, and takes charge for another. And it's typically the highest person in a household. Um, the major D manages the public part or the front of house. Um, Cogsworth was voiced by David Ogden Steers in the 1991 film and Ian McKellen in the live action 2017 remake. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I didn't see that one. It Me neither. It seemed creepy. Yeah. I mean, I think of all of the Disney, like I'm also not a, like a Disney person really, yeah. but like yeah. of all of the Disney films of my childhood, I hold Beauty and the Beast dearest in my heart. So I didn't want to like ruin that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm the same way. Like of all the Disney films that I watched when I was a kid, the two that I loved the most was Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. And oh, I think those yeah. were like, those were like, you know, you... That was at the right time for both exactly. of us. Yeah. You know? <laughs> All right. Number six. Mr. Giles French, an English gentleman's gentleman who becomes saddled with the responsibility of caring for Sissy, Jody, and Buffy after they're orphaned and sent to live with their Uncle Bill in New York City. I mean, I'm assuming this is a book series. It is not. Oh, it's not. Okay. Oh, shoot. Because my guess was going to be Babysitter's Club because I never read it. <laughs> so so and the name buffy reminded me of the 80s because mm. who's named buffy this um, is actually out of the 60s <gasps> oh no oh wait um is it hold on it's not valley of the dolls is it no oh shoot all right, what is it? All right, it's a TV series that ran from 1966 to 1971. It's called Family Affair. Oh, I don't think I've ever heard of this. Okay, yeah. Sissy, Jody, and Buffy are like those, if you hear those names, and Mr. Okay. French or Giles French, um, that's a family affair. And Mr. French was played by Sebastian Cabot. Hmm. All right. All right, number seven, Lurch, a six-foot, nine-inch-tall, gloomy butler. You rang... That's- that's the Adams family. It is the Adams family. Um, it was played. He was played on the original 1960s TV series by Ted Cassidy, who was really six foot nine inches tall. Oh my god! And they put him in platform boots, so he was even <laughs> taller. <laughs> Crazy. Very recognizable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, number eight, Benson Dubois, the rise. Cracking Butler on a nighttime parody of Sudsy serial daytime shows. He later got his own spinoff series. The only thing that I can think of, and I'm pretty sure I'm wrong, is it Designing Women? It's not Designing no. Women. Shoot. Um, they didn't have a butler. Oh, I don't know. I didn't watch. I don't watch Designing Women. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess they just they just make curtains, right? They're just like a designing, like they're an interior design company, aren't they? I guess why would they have a butler? <laughs> <laughs> they just make curtains. That's well, like the. <laughs> I just the watched most reductive tagline for any <laughs> sitcom ever. No, probably. it's because I just watched that Thirty Rock episode where the Designing Women marathon is on oh. TV, and and Liz stays up all night finishing a thing, and then she's like, "You will never design curtains in Atlanta, Georgia, ever again." <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I got it's the curtain thing from. It's um, yeah, I don't. I, I a didn't... nighttime parody of Sudsy serial daytime shows. Nighttime parody of Sudsy serial daytime shows. 
Is this like an 80s TV show? Uh, it was a 70s TV show. Oh, shoot. Yeah, I'm really bad at mid-century television. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What is it? It was called Soap. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he also got his own spinoff called Benson. I would have yes, accepted I knew about either Benson. Soap or Benson. I knew about Benson, and oh. actually, Benson is in my episode next week. <laughs> How about that? Weirdly enough, that yeah, very weird. It's very weird. So, yeah, Benson was played by Robert Guillaume, who twice won an Emmy Award for his portrayal of the character Benson Dubois. Once in 1979 from Soap, and once in 1985 for Benson. I love this kind of crap where somebody wins. You know, somebody That's wins amazing. for like being on different different shows you know how like yeah. Fraser Crane you mm-hmm. know of uh, three three shows Cheers, he won yeah. an Emmy for being Benson yeah. won it twice for two different shows and he also later voiced Rafiki in The Lion King from 1994 get out of yeah. here yeah Robert Guillaume Robert Guillaume so I think I think like vaguely in my head I knew of soap as like a parody of soap operas so quick sidebar on soap mm-hmm. operas BBC Radio's The Archers, which was first broadcast in 1950, is the world's longest running radio soap opera and also the world's longest running drama at more than 19,300 episodes as of this recording. Oh, my God. And the world's longest running television soap opera is Coronation Street, which was first broadcast Mm. on ITV in 1960, and it aired its 10,000th episode in February 2020. And in the timeline of the show, that's only like a month. Exactly. Exactly. They've been in the same conversation for like 40 years. (laughs) Hey, I can still turn on Days of Our Lives and like recognize who people are like like nothing. All right. Number nine, Mr. Butler Tron, the loyal robot servant to Principal Scudworth. He calls everyone Wesley, even if their names are Abe, Cleo or Joan. This is Clone High. I love this show. It is Clone High. I knew you would know this one. So that was only on from 2002 to 2003. Um, Clone Mm -hmm. High is a Canadian-American animated series created by Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, and Bill Lawrence. It centers on a high school populated by the clones of famous historical figures, including adolescent depictions of Abe Lincoln, Joan of Arc, Gandhi, Cleopatra, and JFK. It also served as a parody of teen dramas like Dawson's Creek and Beverly Hills Mm -hmm. 90210. And every episode is introduced as a very special episode. Um, So Mr. Butlertron, he was originally supposed to be like they originally modeled his character after like Mr. Belvedere, and mm-hmm. that was like the whole point of it. And so he calls everyone Wesley because one of Mr. Belvedere's like charges' name was Wesley, and so they mm-hmm. like left that in, even though they couldn't like keep the butler, <laughs> the butler <laughs> robot named as Mr. Belvedere. And it would no. have been too easy if I would have given you Mr. Belvedere as one of the questions in this. That's all right. Yeah. Episode. No, I get it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you might have heard us talk about Clone High before, but um, it's one of the few animated series that Lauren has enjoyed in life. That's true. Yeah, I'm usually not a fan of adult cartoons, but Clone High like got me in the right place. It's very funny. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. All right, and finally, number 10, Duckworth. Life is like a hurricane for this no-nonsense butler and chauffeur who, despite his name, is an anthropomorphic dog. I feel like you would have gotten extremely angry with me if I got this one wrong, too. This is DuckTales. It absolutely is DuckTales. Um, so in the 2017 reboot of the show, which I actually haven't watched any of yet, mm. I'm looking, I will 
I will at some point. But I hear 20, good things. In the 2017 reboot, apparently Duckworth was dead already, but <gasps> he was summoned back to the world of the living by Black Arts Beagle. And his ghost has since returned to his duties as Scrooge McDuck's faithful butler. Which, like, come on. He was... <laughs> He was but dead and you brought him back to life to keep being your butler? <laughs> I know. You'd think you'd give him his freedom at least. Jeez. Doesn't David Tennant do the voice of Scrooge McDuck? Ooh, that's a good, good question. I, I think he does. Like, I think that was part of like the excitement that people had because David Tennant <laughs> is like, you know, beloved Everybody around the world. Them. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And that was all my questions on the butler did it that was very good um i got my classic eight correct <laughs> <laughs> that's a solid i solid call thing. that a- yeah the things that the we we will eventually do an episode on mid-century television we just haven't gotten around to it yet it's just it's a lot like the television episodes and the music episodes they're it's a lot of work again it's a lot of work I have to reiterate i probably put 25 hours of work into the eurovision episode yeah <laughs> and that the Eurovision episode is your magnum opus, I, as far as I'm concerned. Like, I can't. I can't do that every time, guys. <laughs> no, no, you can't. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. Sometimes we need a light week. We had, you know what? These past couple of weeks before before this week, they were longins. Yeah. You know? What yeah. Josh calls a corker. Yeah. And it's okay. Sometimes you need just like a quick bite. <laughs> just a quick bite of info. Yes. So, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, thank you so much. Please uh, check out our merch on uh, on T Public, um, and uh, please, you know, more uh, designs coming soon. We promise. Yeah, more designs coming soon. You know, buy a T shirt or a notebook or whatever, or just scroll and take a look at what T Public has to offer. Offer. They've got a lot of cool stuff. Definitely. Um, so, uh, yeah. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.